Now, at the end of chapter 8 last week, we see that God loves us and that God's love is not going to be swayed, watered down, removed, hindered in any way. God's love for us, no matter what height or depth or length or width, things present, things to come, death, life, angels, principalities, creatures, nothing is going to stop God's response towards us. God is always the same. He never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. God is the same. And he tells us to be the same way. The Bible says, love your enemies. And the Bible also says, love those who love you. So, we love those who love us. Now, that's easy. Jesus said, even people who don't know him can do that. So, we obviously want to love those who, who are lovely and who are lovable and who love us and like us and are friendly to us and think the way we think. That's, that's natural. We're going to automatically do that. But Jesus says, do the same for the people on the opposite end of the scale. Therefore, to be sons as your Father who is in heaven. Be exactly the way he is. The Bible says if you have a master or an employer who's a really nice guy, work for him as unto the Lord. But the Bible also says if you have a harsh master who's cruel and unreasonable, work for him as unto the Lord. The Bible says that God loves those who are unthankful and evil. He says in Luke chapter 6, Therefore you do the same and prove yourselves to be sons of the Most High God. The unthankful and the evil, we love them. So God's love never changes. How much more towards his kids? And so Satan is trying to put into our minds any way he can that God is through with us. He's irritable with us. He's impatient with us. He's thinking about throwing us away. That's what Satan wants us to believe, that God is thinking differently than he once thought about you. Back when you were first saved, oh, that was a glorious night when you came forward to receive the Lord. And that was a great couple of months. And, well, oh, that year was a little shaky, but it was a good year. But ever since then, man, God has really wondered why he ever called you to be a Christian to begin with. And he's really sick of you, and he's sort of stuck with you. And he's like, well, if you weren't a Christian, I wouldn't even talk to you, you know. If you weren't a believer, I wouldn't even be putting up with you. And I'm really sorry that you ever got saved and I got to spend heaven with you and uh, you know and that's all in the mind of man it's never in the mind of God God loves us with a perfect love now that's all wonderful and that's all true but we also will find there's always a response to how God is now we're not going to look at it tonight but your homework this week is to go read that giant book of Jude. It's all one chapter, just a few verses. And the theme of that book is keeping yourself in the love of God. And in that book, he gives the names of several people who were once followers of God, but no longer were followers of God because they had a love for something else. For instance, Balaam was a prophet of God, but he had a love of money. And that love of money, as Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, 
pierced him through and drowned him with many hurtful sorrows. And so Balaam, out of his covetousness, not staying in the love of God, lost all. And you'll see that all the way through the book. Keep yourself in the love of God. God's love for you is not changed. But are you experiencing all of God's love? Paul said in Ephesians chapter 3, Oh, I wish you guys knew the height, the width, the depth, the length, to know the love of God that passes all understanding, to be filled up with all the fullness of God as the rest of the saints are. So the Ephesus church was not experiencing all the love that God had for them as the other saints were. And so if you are not keeping yourself in the love of God, God's love is there and it's consistent, it's steady. He, he wants you to experience all of him. But again, the response has to come. You have to keep yourself in that love in which God loves us so you experience all of that love that God has for you. And so when you're walking in that love of God, you're confident in God. When you're not walking in the love, you're not keeping yourself in the love of God, then you're going to lose the emotion, the feeling of confidence in God. Not that God's changed and not that your relationship has changed, but your confidence, your feelings, your experience in that love of God is definitely going to wane and it's going to change. And so if you're keeping yourself in the love of God, you're going to experience that wonderful love that God has for you. And that's always God's desire. And of course, that's a whole nother Bible study. And had I done that, we would have been another week in chapter 8. And uh, having been there already for several months, I fear we must go on to chapter 9. And tonight, we're in chapter 9, verse 1. I only had to talk for 15 minutes before we got there. It's amazing. Anyway, I tell the truth in Christ. Paul always told the truth, of course, but his readers didn't always believe Paul told the truth. And he often had to say, as God is my witness, or um, uh, I'm speaking the truth, I am not lying. He had to say this a number of times in his letters. It was all a part of Satan's strategy to always make Paul look suspect. But he isn't suspect. He's always telling the truth. I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit. So I have a pure, complete confidence that what I'm saying is not just a sales pitch. It's completely 100% true. That I have a great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I would wish that I myself were accursed from Christ and my brother and my kinsmen, the Jews, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises of whom and of whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is overall and eternally blessed God. Amen. Now, this is pretty radical for Paul to say this. Ever since Paul came to Christ, the Jews tried to kill him. They had to lower him in a basket over a wall out of Damascus. He comes to the Christian Jews. They don't want to accept him. They, they think it's all a plot to try to do in the Christians. So finally Barnabas accepts him. And, and then really his Jewish brothers, Peter and James, and the other, never really cared much for Paul. Him and Peter had a conversation. You read about it in Galatians. And he said, hey, Paul has a ministry to the Gentiles. I have one to the Jews. Um, what they added to me was nothing. <laughs> That's what Paul says. 
they, they really did nothing for me. I thought they would have something to add since they hung out with Christ for three years, but they didn't have anything to add to me. And I didn't really have anything to add to them. We just both had a concern for the poor and we, uh, the, of the Jews in Jerusalem, and we left it at that. Then we see a continual argumentation that Paul had with certain Jews who wanted to go back to the law. And so they were constantly bickering and fighting with one another, and Paul had to have a council in Jerusalem there in Acts 15, saying, hey, we're saved by faith alone, not by works. And they had to agree. But after that, Peter was hanging out with Paul in Antioch, and then he started, he would eat with the Gentiles, you know, eat all the pork chops when they when the Jews weren't around, but as soon as the Jews came up from James, then he got kosher again. And Paul had talked about Peter several times about this. He wouldn't change. And finally, in front of everybody, he goes, Peter's a hypocrite. The guy is, he's totally living a double life. When the Jews come, you know, and he, he had to lay into him. And there we see at the end of his life, as he's heading to Rome, he said, there's nobody standing with me. Even my good friends have now forsaken me. Nobody's with me, not even Luke. Oh, may the Lord not hold it against them on that day. All have forsaken me, and even his son Timothy in the faith was ashamed of him. Paul and the Jews, although he was a Jew, just never had a good go of it. He came to Jerusalem on a couple of occasions by the Lord, telling him to come during the festival days, and both times he, he got arrested, he got beaten, he almost got killed, and finally... He came and, and they started lying, saying that he had uh, taken some Gentiles into the temple, which was an out-and-out -out lie. He had taken some Jews, and according to the Nazarite vow, they had shaved and consecrated themselves. And people got in an uproar and just started to beat him up. The, Jew, the Roman soldiers came down and took him. They were walking up the stairs of the Antonio Fortress. Paul said, can I say something? He, this is it. Man, I've had such a burden for these guys. And here's tens of thousands of them in the feast days there in the outer courts of the temple. This is my opportunity. And, and he started testifying of what God had done for him. And, and, but then when he began to talk about Jesus, that was it. They just flipped out and started screaming, away with this fellow. He's not fit to live. And then they came one after the next and tried to get him put to death or tried to get him injured seriously and and finally some Jews made a pact together to go ahead and kill Paul they said hey we're not going to eat or drink anything until he's dead Paul's nephew heard about it and came in and said hey these guys are serious and so the Roman soldiers at night with the whole cohort cohort of Roman soldiers snuck Paul out of Jerusalem and sent him all the way down to Caesarea Philippi and he ended up hanging out there for two years Paul never had a good experience with the Jews. And so for somebody to say, hey, you know, I would be willing to go to hell if God would accept him into heaven. The first response is, right, Paul. <laughs> like, I really believe that. But he genuinely had a love for the Jewish brethren. He genuinely had a love for his countrymen. He genuinely had a love for those men that he had grown up with as a young boy his family, his friends that he had once known in his, in his Jewish lifestyle. He genuinely had a love for them. And notice in verse 2, that I have a great sorrow and a continual grief in my heart. Oh, that God would give us that burden for souls. John Knox said, Lord, give me Scotland or I die. 
We can read about in history men who had such a burden for their countries. They could not eat. They could not sleep. They would just groan for days on end asking God to bring revival to their churches and to their cities and to their countries. And God heard their cries and answered their prayers. And revival did indeed come. Oh, that we would love the things that God loves. That we would truly have a burden for the hearts of people knowing that they're going to hell. Knowing that people are going to be eternally damned. You know, we can get caught up in so many things and forget eternity. And how the Bible says we need to put our minds on the things above where Christ is seated. And, and for Paul, who had had so many radical experiences, he knew how real heaven was and he knew how real hell was. And he clearly understood that these people were going to go to hell if they did not receive their Messiah. And he had a constant sorrow, a continual grief in his heart. Now, that doesn't mean if you were to see Paul, that you would walk around and Paul's all gloomy. How you doing, brother? Well, no. people are going to hell. I mean, how good can I do? Um, you know, that's not what was going on. It was just this constant tug at his heart to be praying all the time, Lord, open doors that I could witness. Lord, make me a blessing today. Make me a witness. Lord, help me to continue to be a light for you. Everywhere he went, he was constantly mindful that people need to come to Christ. And oh, that we would have the same heart. That we'd go in the grocery store and we'd pray for those people we see. We'd go to the schools and we'd pray as we're walking down the halls of the school and sitting in the classes, Lord, oh, Open the doors. Please, Lord, work things out. God, I want to be a witness. Help me, Lord, that people could come to know you through my mouth and through my words and through my life. And there would be that constant sorrow, that constant grief, that constant tug in our heart, not a burden like Jeremiah said, oh, the burden of the Lord, the burden of the Lord. And God said, oh, shut up. I've not given you such a burden of the Lord that you can't continue on. God's not going to give us a burden that bums us out and, you know, it's all depressed, and that's not the burden of the Lord. The burden of the Lord is just a readiness of mind, a soberness of mind, a constant uh, readiness to not live a sluggish Christian life knowing men need to come to know him. And that's, that's what Paul's talking about here. And he says, knowing that these guys have been given so much, and as we know, much is given, much is required. And notice in verse 4, Oh, by the way, I forgot to mention, Paul in chapter 9 is actually going to continually quote the book of Exodus. And remember in verse 3 there that Moses had said that same thing in, um, over in Exodus where they had sinned and he comes down with the Ten Commandments and breaks them and, and God says finally, step back Moses, I'm going to kill all these people and start from you a new nation. And Moses said, hey, if you are going to blot these people out of the book, blot my name out of the book too. And God said, I'll block whatever I want to blot out. <laughs> and I'll write in whatever I want to write in. And every man's going to have to face his own sin someday. But nevertheless, it's an admirable quality. It was beautiful in Moses and it's beautiful in Paul saying, man, the burden is so great. I'd be willing to suffer eternal damnation if they could go in my place. And uh, of course, that was the heart of Christ, wasn't it? He would be willing to be punished in our place on that cross, beaten where we should be beaten, pierced where we should have been pierced, suffered when we should have suffered, but he did it in our place upon the cross. 
But again, look at all that these Jews, these Israelites, had received. One, they had received the adoption. God had received them as his own children. God had said that the children of Israel are my children. I've set my love upon them. Also the glory, most likely referring just to his presence. Remember, uh, before the tabernacle was built, there was the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. There was a constant presence of God even over the tabernacle. And remember when the ark was taken by the Philistines. Remember that story with um, uh, Eli and then his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, had taken the ark out to fight against the Philistines and they lost. And the Philistines took the ark away. What did they say when Phinehas' wife had a baby? She named him Ichabod, which meant the glory is departed. And so again, the glory was there with the presence of God, uh, the ark of the covenant, symbolic of that. And then also the covenants, well, tons of covenants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There is one in, in Deuteronomy. There's one in Joshua. There's one in Exodus. Uh, each of the books, there was a covenant made with the children of Israel. God's pronounced blessings upon them. And also the giving of the law. And then the service of God, being able to be a priest and to give the sacrifices and be able to pray and to be able to go before God on behalf of the people. And then all of the promises of God the blessings of bringing them into the land, keeping them in the land, and blessing their, their livestock, and blessing their fields, and blessing their families, and all of those blessings. And then also, are whom are the fathers? They were the father, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They were their kids, and they had a wonderful heritage from the Lord as well. And he says, all of these things were given... Um, whom according to the flesh Christ came and also of that same lineage that Christ would eventually come uh, the greatest gift of all God's son was given unto us it says in Isaiah 9 who is over all and eternal bless God forever amen boy if anybody on this earth has ever been blessed by God truly it was the Jewish people oh how much had been given unto them and how they rejected everything you can go back and categorically look Everything God gave them, they polluted. You can go back through the Old Testament. They were willing to turn into, turn in their adoption to, and willing to worship another God at the drop of the hat. They were willing to turn in the presence of God and to be able to have the presence of another God to go with them. They rejected God as king, to have a physical king. The covenants, they continually break. The law, they continue to break. The service of God, they polluted it until finally the last book of the Old Testament says no more sacrifices because you keep bringing the lame and the blind and then you're not giving me a true sacrifice. And then all the promises of God, they rejected them and, uh, by not trusting in God and believing in God. And then what did they ultimately reject? They rejected his Messiah. Now in verse 6, but it is not that the word of God has not taken effect. So, again, the rational mind is God wasn't powerful enough. God wasn't able to save the Israelites. But that would be like saying the bar of soap won't clean people because there's a lot of dirty people around. Well, did they use the soap? No. <laughs> so it doesn't mean that the soap wasn't effective. It just means they didn't use the soap. In the same way, if there's a life jacket to put on and the boat's sinking and the guy drowns and you're going, well, there it was. The life preserver wasn't good enough. Well, did he put it on? No. 
Well, it's not the life preserver. You can't judge it because they never used it. In the same way, it wasn't that the promises weren't good. It wasn't that the covenant wasn't good. It wasn't that God wasn't strong. It wasn't that God wasn't faithful. It wasn't that the Messiah and what he did on the cross wasn't enough. It's that they did not receive it. And so it's important that you understand that, that God's salvation is effective to everyone who will receive it. But there in the last part of verse 6, for they are not all Israel. Now the word Israel uh, can mean a few different things, but the meaning here is governed by God. So not all they who are Israel, the nation of Israel, who are Israel, who are really governed by God. So who is truly governed by God? That's the question. So is everybody who calls himself a Christian a Christian? No. That's just not the case. I may have my little six-year-old boy run around the house and be dressed up like a policeman, but that doesn't mean he's a policeman. In the same way, not everybody who says, well, I'm a Jew, which means God's praise, as he pointed out in uh, Romans chapter 2, not everybody who says they're God's praise is really living unto God's praise. In the same way, somebody who says they're governed by God, are they really governed by God? And so the point he's making, as he's going to show us here, is just because you're of the physical lineage of Abraham did not guarantee that you were indeed going to be right with God. Now notice here, he's going to point this out. Nor are, all, are they all children because they are of the seed of Abraham, but he says, in Isaac your seed shall be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, Ishmael, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. Now, this is an important point, because he says in verse 9, for this is the word of promise, at this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. Now, did Abraham have other children besides Isaac? Yes, he did. He had children before Isaac, and he had children after Isaac. There was other sons. They're listed in the book of Genesis. The first one, as you remember, he was getting quite old, and God had promised that he would have a son of promise, but he decided by his wife's uh, instigation to go ahead and go into Hagar, Sarah's maid that came out of Egypt, and from her to have a child, Ishmael. Now, it's interesting, because if you look back over there, and let's do that, over to um, Genesis. Verse 17, chapter 17, verse 18. Genesis chapter 17. Starting there in verse 18. Now, God's having a conversation with Abraham. Ishmael's already been born. He's now established circumcision as the sign that he would be a, the covenant people of God. And he says, and Abraham said to God, oh, this is great. He just circumcised everybody. This is wonderful. Uh, verse 17, Abraham fell on his face and he laughed and he said, in his heart shall a child be born to a man who's 100 years old and this. And then he, he just says, hey, that's a great idea having a child through Sarah, but <laughs> it's not reality, God. And he said, oh, Lord, that Ishmael might live before you. This is good enough. We had a, a child through 
uh, Sarah's maid, which is like it's unto Sarah. Oh, let Ishmael live before you. That's great. And God said, no. Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call him Isaac. Laughter. Because, again, they were laughing about it, him and Sarah. I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his descendants after him. And verse 20, And as per Ishmael, I have heard you. I heard your request. You want me to see him blessed? Behold, I'll bless him. And I will make him fruitful and will multiply him exceedingly. He shall beget twelve princes and I will make him a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this same time next year. So he's made it abundantly clear that Ishmael is his son, no doubt. Because he wants Ishmael to be blessed, God will bless him. But it's through the son of promise that God is going to give the blessing. Now look over to Genesis 22, if you would. This is a story where God's going to have Abraham offer Isaac as a sacrifice. And he comes to Abraham and he says, Abraham says, here I am. And in verse 2 of Genesis 22... And he said, take now your son, what? Your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah. God did not even recognize the son of the flesh. God only recognized the son of the promise. I love this for a few reasons. One, notice in God and his grace doesn't bring up the works of the flesh. <laughs> Isn't God so gracious? He just forgets about those works of the flesh, and he only concentrates on the works of the Spirit. And so he says, take your son, your only son. I've done a lot of stupid things, and I'm glad that when God thinks of me, he doesn't calculate in all those stupid things, but God calculates in the works that I've done in the Spirit. Now, far as reward, that's another thing uh, the Bible makes it clear that God will take into the reward system the things I've done, good and bad, um, in that day. And, and some of those things I've done wrong are going to be hay, wood, and stubble that will be burned up in the fire and will cause a loss of reward, uh, as well as not giving me a gain of reward. But far as my position in Christ and my feelings and God's feelings towards me, He only recognizes the things that we've done in the Spirit. And so the first point God is making here is that not those who are physically sons of Abraham are going to receive the promises of God. Take a look over, if you would, in um, Matthew chapter 3. There in verse 9. And then we're going to go to John 8:38. But in Matthew 3, 9... This is where John the Baptist, Baptist is baptizing and the Pharisees come out and he's quite upset about this. And he says, Do you not think to say to yourself, verse 9 now, Matthew 3, 9, Don't think to say to yourself, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now an axe is laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And so those Pharisees were wanting to say, well, we have Abraham as our father. John the Baptist said, so what? It doesn't mean anything. Ishmael could say the same thing. It's not going to fly. 
It's those who are followers of God, even if you're a Jew. And then turn over to John, chapter 8. The Gospel of John, chapter 8. John, chapter 8. And this is a discussion Jesus is now having with the Pharisees. And he says in verse 37, let's start there. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, but you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. Now, John chapter 8, verse 38. I speak what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have seen with your father. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, if, notice this, if you were Abraham's children, I believe Jesus here is saying children of promise is what he was thinking, you would do the works of Abraham. That's exactly what John the Baptist said, wasn't it? You're really children of Abraham? Bring fruits. Bear fruits. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. So if you're really a chip off the old block, you would be like the old block. And the old block loved what I had to say. You do the deeds of your father. Then they said to him, we were born, not born of fornication, I believe referring back to the fact that they knew somewhere uh, as they were trying to find out bits of uh, tainted information about Jesus, they found out that Joseph was an Israel dad. And they didn't really know who Israel dad was. And so Jesus was a bastard. He was, in their mind, born out of wedlock or uh, conceived out of wedlock. So we, at least we're not born of fornication. We have one father, God. So at least we know who our dad is. And Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth from forth and came from God, nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Because you are not able to listen to my word. You are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. Satan wanted to kill him, and so did these Pharisees. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which, I, if, uh, you, which of you convicts me of sin? And if I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears God's word. Therefore you do not hear because you are not of God. Pretty plain that it's not those who are physically born a Jew makes them right with God. So let's get that out of the way. Now, let me tell you something. There is certain groups who tell us that we should cherish our Jewish roots far more. And I love to look at Judaism. I love to look at our roots of the Old Testament. I love to study out the Old Testament. I love to know about the feast. But let me tell you something. As we're going to read here in Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11, God is no respecter. He could tell, care less if you were a Jew or a Gentile at this dispensation of time. There's one thing he cares about, and that is, are you walking in the promise? Are you receiving the promise? And there's only one lineage that counts, and that's of Jesus Christ. Are you adopted in to the family of Jesus Christ through the blood of Jesus Christ? And so, here again, Paul is making it clear. Abraham of your father, it's really not the point. 
The point is, are you following the same God that Abraham followed in the same way Abraham followed him? Look over, if you would, at Galatians. Really neat verse. Chapter 4, verse 28. Galatians chapter 4, verse 28. Now this is where he's comparing Ishmael with Isaac and Sarah with Hagar. And he comes and he finally says in verse 23, brethren, referring to born-again believers, as Isaac was, are children of promise. But as he who was born according to the flesh then persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, even so it is now. Those who are in the flesh, those who want to be justified by their works, they're always going to persecute those who simply want to walk by faith in Jesus Christ. So he says in verse 31, So we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. So salvation comes as a free gift from God, not of our works. It's a free gift given by God. How did Isaac come into the world? By efforts of man? No. By a supernatural work of God. Sarah was 90. Abraham was 99. She was 91 when she had the baby. Abraham was 100 when the baby finally came. And so the reality is it's God did it. How is it that you are born again? God did it. We had no more efforts of our own. It says in Romans 4, they were as good as dead. <laughs> That's the way we are in our good works. Our good works, a prophet what? Nothing. The Bible says our works are as filthy rags before God. In our own efforts, we will not ever gain salvation. Salvation is something God did by his own strength, by his own power, by his own goodness, by his own love through the cross of Christ. Now in verse uh, 10, he's going to give us another example. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls, it was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. As it's written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Now, this is quite interesting because the last one we can say, well, it's pretty clear. Hagar was an Egyptian woman. And Ishmael was really only half Jewish, half from the uh, lineage going back to Mesopotamia. And so it's understandable. So in a Jewish mind, they could say, yeah, you know, she, he was really uh, partly Gentile. Interesting. Interesting point. If you go to Israel today and your dad was a Jew, your mom was a Gentile, you know what they say? You're a Gentile. But if you go over there and say your mom was a Jew and your dad was a Gentile, guess what? You're a Jew. <laughs> if your mom was a Jew, you're a Jew. But if your mom wasn't a Jew, you're not a Jew. I, we were, uh, I was on a tour with Israel, and 
and we were asking the Jewish tour guide about this question. We said, why is this? Oh, it makes sense. It only makes sense. And we said, well, what about Ruth? <laughs> she was a Moabitess and the great-grandmother of King David. So therefore, King David wasn't a Jew. He turned beet red and just started screaming at us. No Christian is ever going to be a Jew, you know, and he was just hot under the collar. You keep kosher and you go to the Jewish synagogue and your mom was a Jew, you're a Jew. But if you're a Christian, I don't care if both of your parents were Jews, you're not a Jew. He was just very prejudiced against Christians, very irate over it. But again, it doesn't make sense. And they don't know uh, who's a Jew. It's, it's hilarious when you go over to Israel because there's every color on earth. You've got the pitch black Ethiopian Jews. These guys were over in Ethiopia and uh, they were being massacred. And they heard about it in Israel and they went over there going, can you have a black Jew? <laughs> and they were keeping the law of Moses. That's all they had was the, 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 the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. They didn't have much of anything else. That's why many think they're actually possibly from the lineage of Solomon, one of Solomon's wives. But they had priests. They were keeping kosher, and they had kept themselves isolated from all people. They were living in a total um, no running water, no electricity. They didn't even know what an oven or refrigerator was. And this is 1985. Okay. And so the Jews went over there, paid a bunch of bribe money, and just started flying him. Gutted a bunch of 747s, started bringing them over, bringing them over, bringing them over. And so today in Israel, you've got all these. They're beautiful people, by the way. They, they all look like they're from a kingly line. But you see all these black Jews. <laughs> and then, of course, you have another section of all Spanish-speaking Jews. And they look just like Spanish people. Look like Mexicans. There they are, speaking Spanish. And you got your Ethiopian speaking Ethiopian. And then you got your German speaking German and your French speaking French. And, and they all look like from the countries they came from, but yet they all claim to be pure Jews. And it's funny because they all get sectioned off in their own little section. They all have their own language. And of course, they're all supposed to learn Hebrew and they're all trying. It's a very difficult language to learn. But now you come to the second one, and not only do you have the same mom and same dad, but she had the kids at the same time. They were twins, Jacob and Esau. So now it begins to narrow down. So if you wanted to say, well, that makes sense. You know, Hagar was an Egyptian. She wasn't really a Jew. Yeah, it makes sense. Ishmael, get out of here. But he's coming back going, no, I'm making it clear. It has nothing to do with race. God's Jews as a nation are God's chosen people. I'm not going to take that away. They were the chosen by God. But he's making it clear that those people in heaven aren't going to be in heaven because they had the right bloodline. It's not going to happen. And now he points out with Isaac, or excuse me, Isaac had two sons, uh, Jacob and Esau. Now he even makes it further understanding election. He says, God made the choice before they were ever even born. Now, this tweaks a lot of people. 
Because you can look back in Genesis and say, well, Ishmael, look at the way he acted. He was laughing at Sarah, you know, the mother of our faith. And he was laughing at Isaac, you know, seeing this 91-year-old woman breastfeeding and, and Hagar and Ishmael making fun of her. And Sarah said, get out of here. And, you know, well, he's sort of a mean, cruel guy. And, yeah, get, get rid of him. But now the decision's made before they're ever born. So now what do you do? <laughs> You understand a purpose of God, the principle of election. That you who are believers today are believers and chosen to be believers before time ever began. 2 Timothy 1.9 Who saved us? Who called us with this holy calling? Not according to our works, but according to his own purpose given us in Christ Jesus before the foundations of the world. Or literally, in the, in the Greek it means before time began. Before the clock ever started clicking, God looked into the future and God saw you. And he predestined you. He foreknew you. He elected you. Now, our fleshly, sinful nature gets tweaked over this. Because the very next question is, look in verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? That's our first question. Not fair. That sounds tweaked. That sounds weird. That sounds bizarre. Why would God elect somebody before they're yet even born? How, how could he do that? He's God. He's sovereign. Now, we can start justifying it. We can start saying, well, you know, God knows the end from the beginning. And God already knows the future. God knows the present, past, and future equally. He knows them all. It's, you know, we scratch our head going, now, I don't really remember, but, you know, uh, I think it was this way. In the present, we say, yeah, I, yeah, it happened five minutes ago, this way, we think. The future, we have no idea. God, he, he looks at all of them all the time. God right now is looking at the past equal as looking at the future. He's looking at it all right now. And so we can say God already knows how man was going to be. And therefore God went ahead and chose them knowing how man was going to be. And if that makes you feel better, go ahead and do that. And that's probably partially true. But in reality, God chose you because God chose you. Why? Because he did it. Can he do that? He's God. <laughs> he can do anything he wants. Yes. It's his ball, it's his bat, it's his field. He can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, however he wants. And if you want to say, hey, there's three strikes and you're out, and God decides there's four, there's four. It's that simple. You say first base is here, second base is here, and third base is here. And if God decides, forget first base, it no longer exists. Second and third is all that exists. Well, hold it, God, you know, that's not the way the game's played. It's my ball, it's my bat, it's my field, get out of here. God will do whatever God wants to do. He's sovereign. Job learned this. As you read the book of Job, why did things happen the way they did? And him and his friends are trying to figure it out, and they can't figure it out. And, and they, start, they start telling each other what God is thinking. And they start telling each other why God did what God did. And God comes on the scene finally 
And he's angry. And he just starts railing on these guys. Hey, I got a question for you guys. Were you there when I said, let there be light? How did I do it? Exactly what happened there? Were you there when I put the compass upon the deep? Exactly what did I, what was I thinking when I did that? Go ahead, I'm waiting, tell me. By the way, how long is a deer pregnant? I know. How much does a young lion eat? I know, I feed him. Gee, there seems to be a lot of things right under your nose you don't even know about, and you're going to tell me what I did at the beginning of time? And then he says, so, can you go down and throw a hook in the water and catch the big Leviathan, this big giant sea creature, this prehistoric creature that spit fire and its scales were like metal that spears couldn't go through. He just starts running. He goes, I made a big dumb bird, an ostrich. I made a big giant bird that can't fly. And it's so stupid, it turns around and steps on its own egg. Can't remember where it laid it after it laid it. Why did I do that? Because I wanted a big dumb bird. That's what God says. It's in the book of Job. Why, why did I make a horse's, the bottom of its foot, right, at the, right before its foot, make a little crook in it? And so a horse bends at the, why did I do that? He said, because I knew one day there would be battle. And when men were marching to battle, I wanted it to sound thunderous upon the earth. Pretty good thinking, God. And God just starts blowing their minds. And finally, Job just says, God, please stop. All of these things are too wonderful for my ears that I should hear them. By the way, every major branch of science is mentioned in the book of Job. There is nothing we know about science today that's not talked about in the book of Job. There's a great little book uh, by Dr. Morris called um, The Incredible Record of Job. Great book. I encourage you to get it. And finally, Job says there, in Job chapter 42, he says, God, I have learned today that there is nothing that can thwart your will. And that you have counsel and you hide it, and that's fine. And it is not right for man's ears to hear. He acknowledged that there's information that God has, there's thought processes that God has that man cannot hear because he wouldn't understand it, and even if he understood it, he wouldn't accept it. And that's just the reality. God knows the end from the beginning. God knew you before time ever began. God knows every single person that will ever exist, and he knows their end from the beginning. And God chooses some. Why? Because he chooses them. Well, I think God should choose everybody. Well, you're not God. That's the point. Now, if you have a problem with this, it's because you're on the wrong side of the fence. Now, if I were to say tonight, everybody who came here tonight, I'm going to give you a million dollars. 
at the back of the door when you leave tonight, everybody who came Wednesday night is going to get a million dollars. Now, somebody shows up Sunday morning and says, hey, I wasn't here Wednesday night. That's not fair. Why didn't you give it out Sunday morning last Sunday? Well, that's just when I wanted to do it. But why? That's just what I, the way I wanted to do it. Well, it's not fair because I didn't make it Wednesday night. So what? That's the way it goes. Now, do I have anybody who came up Wednesday night complaining? Oh, don't give it to me yet. Wait till next Sunday morning. I don't think so. The only people that are complaining are the Ishmaels. The only people complaining are the Esau's. Isaac wasn't complaining. Jacob wasn't complaining. If you're on the right side of this package, it's wonderful. Because it's awesome to think that God knew me before time began. It's awesome to think that God set his love upon me before anything ever existed. God saw me and knew me and set his love upon me. And how comforting it is now to know that God chose me before the foundations of the world because he already saw me after the foundations of the world together with him in glory, it says in Romans chapter 8. So I love this whole idea of election because I'm elected. (laughs) Now, if I'm not elected, I hate this whole thing. It sounds unfair. I don't like it. And so the world will find, as it says here, they will find unrighteousness with God. Why? Because, well, I don't like it. I don't think it's fair. Well, what is it that's not fair? Well, I think God should choose everybody. Okay, let me ask you. Are you wanting an arranged marriage, or do you want to be able to say yes or no? I'll tell you, I'm glad that I got my choice to ask the woman I wanted to marry me. Nobody made me. I got my choice to ask Cheryl to marry me. And I'm sure she's glad that nobody forced her to marry me. It was freely her choice. Now, is there evil in that? Well, it's not right. You should marry every woman in the world. Well, I can't. I'm going to marry one. Well, you shouldn't marry any then. That's ridiculous. Because I choose one woman to be my wife doesn't make things evil. Now, if you came up and you said, Brian, I've got a hundred-gallon barrel of apples. Here you go. You know what? We might be able to handle about ten of them. But... 100, you know, 100 gallons of apples. I'm sorry, we can't eat that many. Well, you got to take the whole barrel. Well, they're just going to rot because I can't eat them all. You know what? Let me get a bag here and let me take 10 of them. Well, if that's all you're going to take, you know the rest are going to rot. I don't want any more than 10. Let them rot. That's what's going to happen. That's what's going to happen. Now, Is it evil that I chose 10 of those apples? No, that's all I wanted. God chose the elect. Why? Because that's what he wanted. Is it evil of God? No, because 100% of everybody was going to hell. And if God saves some, does that make God evil? No. Now, what we want to say is God choose everybody. But the bottom line is, is not everybody wants to choose God. And if you're here tonight going, I don't like this idea of God choosing people. 
I think everybody should have a free choice to come to God. You do. Well, you said if I'm not elected before the foundations of the world, that I, uh, that's, I have to be elect of God. Well, that's true too. Well, if I'm not elect of God, then I'm not going to be saved. That's right. Well, I don't think that's fair. Well, ask God to come into your life. Well, I'm not ready yet. Well, it's probably because you're not the elect. He's proposing and you're saying no. But he didn't bother to propose. So now you're all mad that you can't say no. But it doesn't really matter, does it? Because even if you did propose, you're going to say no. So why bother proposing? If I knew for sure that Cheryl would have said no to me, I wouldn't have proposed to her. I thought there was a pretty good chance she would say yes. I was quite certain she would say yes. <laughs> and she did. Now, God knows who's going to say no, and God knows who's going to say yes. Does that mean the opportunity isn't for everybody to be saved? It is. God wishes all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Jesus Christ died for everybody. It says he is the propitiation, not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. Everybody can come to God. But let's face it, as we know the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, does everybody get saved? No, it does not happen. But there are those universalists that say the brotherhood of all people, eventually everybody's going to make it. But if you think about it, the whole Bible is a big joke then. Salvation's a joke. Jesus dying on the cross is a joke. The covenant's a joke. Everything's a joke. If there is no judgment, there is no mercy. Think about it. If there is no judgment, there is no mercy. It doesn't exist. What am I being merciful about? Mercy is not receiving the judgment that you should receive. But if there is no judgment to be received, then there is no mercy. So the whole concept of God saving man, the whole concept of God showing mercy upon man, the whole concept of heaven, it's all a big joke. It doesn't, it cannot exist one without the other. You cannot have mercy without judgment. And so again, we see here very clearly that God has allowed every one of you to make the free choice to come to him, but he already knows. Now, what's that say of us who have come to Christ? We are the elect of God. Now, is there unrighteousness with God because he didn't allow everybody to go to hell, but he saved some to go to heaven? No. There is no unrighteousness with God, no more than me taking ten apples, knowing the rest were going to rot. Now, he says in verse 15, For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. Again, that's out of the book of Exodus, where uh, he passes by and he wants to see the nature of God, and the Lord says, basically, I am who I am, and I have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will harden uh, or have compassion on whomever I'll have compassion. So God is a sovereign God. He does what he pleases. He does what he wants to do, when he wants to do it, and how he wants to do it. And then he goes on to say, So then it's not to him who wills, nor him who runs, but God who shows mercy. Now I'm going to come back to that verse 16. It's a real important verse. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, Even for this same purpose I have raised you up, that I may show 
my power in you and that my name might be declared in all the earth. And then he goes on to say, therefore he has mercy on whom he wills and whom he wills, what? He hardens. Now people have a problem with that. They say, hold on here now. God can save whom he will, but it doesn't say that he'll just save whom he will. It doesn't just say he chooses the elect for his own purpose, but the Bible also says he hates those who aren't his elect. Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. Some commentators have a real problem with that, and they say, well, what it means is Jacob I love and Esau I love less. <laughs> you look in the original Greek, it says no such thing. Now, if you look where that verse is quoted, verse 13, it's out of Malachi chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. And you don't need to go there right this minute, or verse 2 and 3, excuse me. And there he's talking about the country of Israel, or the country of Esau and the country of Jacob. So he's not necessarily specifically saying, Jacob, that one person I love, and Esau, that one person I hate. He's looking at their lineage. He's looking at their descendants and where the line goes after that. Where does the line afterwards go with Jacob? It goes to the people of Israel who eventually comes the Messiah. Esau, where does it go? It goes to a bunch of people who become more and more pagan until eventually God has to totally destroy the nation because they're so wicked. And there's no more Edomites in existence today because of it. And so God saw where things were going, and he said before they had yet started their lineage, before their countries were ever even established as a country, he saw where things were headed, and he loved the one and hated the other. Now, that gives us great hope as believers because we see Jacob. If you ever looked at his life, he wasn't very admirable. The guy was a dirty, rotten thief pretty much until the guy died always being sneaky and deviant, but ultimately, Jesus Christ. What's that say of us? Maybe today you're Jacob, but eventually we're going to awaken in his likeness. I don't know what we're going to be like, but I know one day we will be just like him. It says in 1 John 3. So God is telling us with our lineage that we are heading to be just like Jesus Christ. And so... God has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills, God hardens. Now, for some of you, this may be a very difficult concept. And it's not something that's talked about a lot in the Bible. But the bottom line is this, is God is sovereign, and God does as he wants. Now, we're going to go into this more next week. But the bottom line, when I read these passages of Scripture... You know what they make me want to do? They make me want to fall on my face and say, God, don't mess with me, man. I'm yours. <laughs> it makes me want to fall on my face and be in fear and in awe and respect of the Almighty. Because Satan, you see, wants to paint God as this undecisive Santa Claus grandpa figure in heaven. You know, he's just sort of up in heaven you know, sort of Mr. Jolly and, you know, sort of he's, he's lost half of his mind already, you know, and he's up there going, what do you think, God? Gee, I don't know. I just love Christians, you know, and 
And, and then you get that concept in the church. People who are really spiritual are these airhead people who just, doesn't matter to me, just love each other, everybody, you know, be happy, you know. And that's, that's the way God is. He's this guy who doesn't think, who doesn't feel, who has no sharpness to his character, who has no real decision-making qualities, who basically just sort of says, well, I say I'm going to put a black coal in your stocking if you're bad, but, you know, everybody gets a present. I say that there's going to be a judgment, but when push comes to shove, ah, everybody's going to come to heaven. And let me tell you, out of the 93% of America that claims to be Christian, I bet you 90% of them believe that. Push comes to shove, ah, it doesn't matter. Come on to heaven. Well, let's just forget about it. You're making, giving me a head of having to think about all the things you did right and wrong and whether or not I can take you to heaven or not take you to heaven. And, you know, let's, I'm getting tired. Let's just call it quits and let everybody come on up to heaven. Let's just get the whole hell thing and just, you know, that's what they're thinking. And I'm telling you, when it comes here, we see very clearly, uh-uh. There's heaven, there's hell, there's love, there's hatred, there is blessing, there is cursing, there is eternal life, and there's an eternal destruction. And God knows, he has it planned, and you're on one side or the other. And if you are not experiencing right now that you are the elect of God, if you don't experience right now God's hand upon your life, if you cannot say, I have seen God operating in my life, I have clearly seen that I am the called, the elect of God. As he said to his apostles in John 15, 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you, that you would go, bear fruit, and your fruit would remain. And whatever you ask of me, that will I do. If you cannot say, I sense God's hand on my life, I go, I bear fruit, that's a remaining fruit. And I experience answers to prayer. I experience the blessings of God because I'm his elect. I'm his royal kingdom. I say to you, you're in a very scary spot. And either you're playing with God or God's playing with you. And let me tell you something, it's not a game you want to play. I would fall on your face and I would stay there until you sense the awe and the fear and the terror of the Lord. The Bible says to rejoice with trembling in Psalms 2. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. There is that awe of God that we need deep down in our hearts. And when I come to Romans chapter 9, I say, God, don't play with me, man. I'm yours. I know you soften whom you will, you have compassion on whom you will, you have mercy on whom you will, and I know in whom you will, you harden. Don't harden me, man. <laughs> I want you. And I fall on my face and say, you are Lord, absolutely, unequivocally, whatever you say, I will do. You say to jump, I say how high. Because I know you alone have the keys to heaven and hell. And I know there are two very real places, and I know where I want to go. And that fear of the Lord will keep you from evil, it says in Proverbs. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And to fear God is to depart from evil. And every time I come to chapter 9, it makes me fall on my face and say, You are God. 
You do as you want, when you want, how you want, and I understand that, and I'm on your side. (laughs) Be my Lord. I'll do what you say. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you tonight for this passage of Scripture, and we, Lord, we ask that you'd give us a great burden for souls, as Paul did, that we would have that constant sorrow for those who don't know you. But also, Lord, as we look at this, we realize it's not the seed of Abraham. It's not the later seed through Abraham, as we saw with Jacob and Esau, but it's the one you choose. It was Jacob, not Esau, because that's who you chose. It was Isaac, not Ishmael, because that's who you chose. And today, Lord, those are believers because you've chosen them to be believers. And we're in awe. We're just so thankful that you chose us, that you want us, that you desire us, that you we didn't choose you, but that you had chose us. And a... Now, at the end of chapter 8 last week, we see that God loves us and that God's love is not going to be swayed, watered down, removed, hindered, In any way, God's love for us, no matter what height or